We are now in the run-up to Christmas. You probably noticed that. Uh, Tinsel's out. Music's changed. Uh, My house is swamped by chocolate, uh, which as somebody who's lactose intolerant, is a peculiar form of purgatory. Uh, I can only eat dark chocolate, and yet my house is full of like celebrations boxes and uh, Thornton's advent calendars and all the rest of it. I've noticed that I get older, I find myself getting more and more grumpy uh, about this time of year. I'm not proud of it, but there it is. At 35 years old, I am already a grumpy old man. Um, This came home to me. The other day, I went to the cinema with two of my friends to see Le Mans 66. Uh, It's really, really brilliant. It's an excellent film. It's about uh, racing Ferraris and Fords. If you've never... Uh, seen a 1960s Ferrari. You've never seen anything as beautiful in your life. It's unbelievable. Uh, the only thing to compare to it was Heather in her wedding dress. I'm uh, not going to say anything else about that. It's going to end up, it's going to end up inappropriate. Um, uh, uh, and the lights went up at the end of this film and it had been great, really good. And it was 11.30 on a Sunday evening. It was a mistake to go to the cinema that late. And the lights went up and we looked around the cinema, the three of us, and we thought... We are the only people for whom work the next day is an issue here. Everybody else is over the age of 65. And uh, this is who we've been spending our Sunday nights with. And it suddenly hit me that I'm becoming middle-aged. And uh, uh, in my grumpiness, one tradition proves particularly irritating to me. Uh, I've touched on it already. Uh, Chocolate advent calendars. I find them really annoying. Uh, I find them really annoying. I discovered when I was trooping around the enormous Tesco at Brooklyn's, you know, the cathedral-sized warehouse of food and unwanted toys, that uh, searching for an acceptable offering for my son, who who wants a chocolate advent calendar but doesn't like chocolate, and so we ended up with this. This is a Haribo advent calendar. It's a sweet-filled advent calendar. This is everything that's wrong with the world. Okay, everything that's wrong with the world is, is included in this picture. Uh, I, I suspect that part of my annoyance is the howl of someone with lactose intolerance who feels left out as I gaze on at the chocolates endlessly coming out of these things. In part, however, I, I sense that it, it's, it's because, for me, the, the, the sweet-filled countdown to Christmas marks the loss of something. I'm not about to rail against the commercialization of Christmas or anything like that, because I actually think that that criticism misses the mark. The problem is not that Christmas is full of commercial stuff, people wanting to give each other things and to celebrate. The problem is not that Christmas has changed, it's that Advent doesn't happen. The problem is that We no longer prepare ourselves. See, Advent was a period before Christmas. For those of you who are not from uh, high church traditions, which I mean Orthodox, Catholic, or uh, uh, more formal Anglican traditions, which I include myself. For those of us who are not from those traditions, it's easy to lose sight of why it is that they have the period of Advent. The period of Advent is a period during which we prepare ourselves to celebrate by reminding ourselves of why we need Christmas at all. What is the point of Christmas? Just as importantly, we look forward to the fulfillment of the promise of Christmas in the future. 
And it's that lack of preparation that makes Christmas seem shallow. Every time you think you want to criticise the shops for selling all this stuff for Christmas, think to yourself, am I actually saying I don't want to have all of the amazing things that we could have on Christmas Day itself? I don't think that's what we feel. I think what we feel is somehow we're feasting without ever learning to fast. Somehow we're celebrating without any sense of why we're celebrating. Um, there was, for me, another moment of grumpy old mandom when I uh, was uh, watching the CBeebies pantomime. For those of you who don't know this, they do these, uh, BBC produces these wonderful children's pantomimes every year. Really good. Uh, Abby absolutely adores them. We, we have them on for about six months of the year. And uh, when they're repeated, you can get them on the iPlayer. I really encourage you to watch them. They're, they're really good fun. The Peter Pan one was brilliant. And... And for those of you who've done Alpha with us, uh, Gem from Alpha is usually one of the leading stars in it. She can sing, but anyway. Um, they did the Snow Queen last year, I'm guessing, sort of piggybacking on Elsa and Frozen. And they had this song in the middle of it. And of course, they didn't, being the BBC and feeling like they could no longer mark any sense of formal religious moment, they had a song in it which they were singing, Celebrate the Season, Celebrate the Festive Season. Well, that's just saying, Celebrate the Season of Celebration. And what you suddenly realise is that's literally what that means. Celebrate the festive season means celebrate the season in which we celebrate. You're like, you're, it's like a donut, right? You've got everything around the outside and nothing in the middle. All the sweetness without the sense of why you need the sweetness, what the sweetness is answering. So actually, that's what we're doing over the next uh, few weeks in our morning services. Uh, this week and next week and on the 22nd, is, is taking time to remember what it is about us and about the world we live in that makes Christmas necessary. And then also looking forward and recognizing the continued pain of the world and the hope that we have of what happens when Jesus comes again. And actually part of what we're doing this is not to, to bring us down when we celebrate Christmas, but actually to make the celebration sweeter. Um, if you were in an Orthodox church, they fast for 40 days before Christmas. I don't mean they eat nothing, but they will eat no meat, no uh, dairy, basically live as vegans, but on a very austere vegan diet for 40 days. Now, I'm not saying I want you to do that, I'm certainly not doing it. But the reason they do that is then when you get to that moment on Christmas Day and the priest stands up and announces Christ is born, the place erupts in candlelight and laughter and joy and suddenly they open the cupboards and there's this food there and the people's hearts are like oh we were longing for this moment and now it has come and actually for them I think there is something sweeter about the celebration than a person who's gorged himself on chocolate every day early up to Christmas and then opens their stocking and finds there's more chocolate there then I always try and give a summary of what it is I'm talking about um, this week we're, we're talking about hope. Hope. Christmas is about the hope of peace with God, with ourselves, and with each other in the midst of a world of pain and failure. Christmas is about the hope of peace with God, with ourselves, and with each other in the midst of a world of pain and failure. It's about the hope of peace with God, with ourselves and with each other in the midst of a world of pain and failure. So we're going to read from the Bible. Um, if you want to grab a Bible and read along, then please do. 
Uh, The main reading that I'm going to get you to open to is Isaiah. From Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. It's a famous, uh, famous Bible reading. Okay, so Isaiah said this. He said, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his ears or decide by what he hears, what he sees with his eyes, sorry, or decide by what he sees, hears with his ears. But with the righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Um, We're going to read a few more readings, some from uh, before Jesus came, some from after Jesus came, uh, explaining something more of this hope and how it relates to Jesus. Heather, would you mind coming and reading, uh, uh, reading from the Psalms? Just my voice is going a little bit. It's on the screen, it's probably easiest. Okay. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son of your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. Thanks. Thanks, Heather. Just give my voice a break for a minute. That was Psalm 72. Now I'm going to read from uh, Romans. This is uh, St. Paul writing after Jesus was... Uh, crucified and raised uh, to the earliest Christians in Rome. From Romans chapter 15 and verses 4 to 13. Don't uh, worry about turning to these particularly. I'm just uh, giving some extra scriptures to help us reflect. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. 
For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm just going to plug this in. Yeah, could you just do that? It just needs to be turned on. Okay. Christmas is about the hope of peace with God, with ourselves, and with each other in the midst of a world of pain and failure. What's going on in Isaiah's reading? He says... Uh, a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Um, can I just have the Bible now that I've not got that? Thanks. He's writing, Isaiah's writing to Israel. This is about 700 years before Jesus. And he's writing a letter at a time when it feels as if the nation is collapsing. Right? I don't know if you can imagine the situation. It's, it's, Israel is there. Uh, Judah is there, rather, and they're surrounded by these armies, uh, the people of the kings of Assyria. Like, imagine for a moment the days when there were uh, tanks and guns and warships and planes massed in France waiting to invade the UK. And it feels as if all hope is lost. Actually, for Israel, it was more serious than this because there were land borders and you had that sense of an empire that was sweeping across the world around them and taking whole nations captive. That's what the Assyrians did. They, they swept through and they took nations captive and they were, they were camped outside Israel and they'd seen city after city falling until the point where they're coming up to the edge of where the power is in Israel. And Isaiah is prophesying and he says, this is a time of despair and disaster. This is a joyful message. Right, you miss this when we read this uh, reading in um, uh, carol services. He talks about the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse is the broken down uh, remains of a tree that has been fall- felled and died. That's when a stump happens. A stump happens when you've had something that's strong, that's grown up like a tree, and then someone has taken an axe to it and left it to die. And he says it feels as if that's where we are. It feels as if Jesse's, the line of kings that have governed us, the people we, we regarded as our kings, who were the ones that were going to lead the nation, have been chopped down and died. Moreover, this isn't some uh, problem that comes from the outside where you've got innocent people saying, oh, well, if only it hadn't happened... He says, uh, if you read the rest of Isaiah, it's obvious what has happened to the country. It's become abusive. The people of Israel, the people of Judah have started being mean to those who have nothing. Those who have lots are horrible to those who have nothing. Those who have much are horrible to those who do not. They've started worshipping other gods. And the other gods have made them do terrible things. 
to their children. And eventually God has said, look, I won't keep on protecting you if if that is how you're going to behave. I'm not going to protect you so you can abuse each other. And so God withdrew his, his protection and these armies started sweeping forwards. And Isaiah says, this is terrible. The situation feels so bleak. It's as if we're a tree that's been cut down and left to die. And yet he says, from the midst of this situation that seems hopeless, right? this tree cannot regrow. It's a stump now. It's not going to be a tree again. It's died. Isaiah says, from the midst of this thing that looks like it's finished its life and its usefulness, it's, it's been axed to the ground, is going to grow something new. Someone is going to come from this line of kings. This dead line of kings is going to produce something new, a shoot. He says a shoot will come from the, from the stump of Jesse. And yet, as well as being a shoot from Jesse, he's also the root of Jesse. Again, we say these things as if they're easy to understand. When actually, if you give that even a moment's thought, how can that possibly be the case? If you've got a plant and it produces a leaf, by definition, it's not the root of the plant. Right? Isaiah is saying God is going to do something in the midst of this despair and this destruction and the feeling that everything's going wrong that is both comes from this line of kings and is also the source of this line of kings. We didn't read because the iPad was dying. There's a, uh, there's a reading from Matthew chapter 3 where John the Baptist comes and he says the same thing about Jesus. He comes and he says, I, there's someone coming after me who was before me. God is going to send someone to Israel who it comes from their kings, who's a king, but who also gives meaning and life to everything that's ever happened. Now, no one knew how this was going to work, right, till you get to Jesus. Because how could it possibly work? It's meaningless until you get to Jesus. And Isaiah says, this new king won't be like anyone else. He will be filled with God. God will be filling him. God's spirit will be with him. He will, be, uh, he will have God's wisdom, God's understanding, God's ability to fight evil. He's not just going to be a man. He's not just going to be a reformer. He's going to be God with the people. And he'll do two important things. I'm just explaining the passage now. I'm going to apply it in a moment. This king, Isaiah says, is going to do two important things. You can see the first lot in uh, the second half of verse 3 going down to verse 5. Actually, both of these are central to understanding why Jesus gives hope. The first thing this king is going to do is do what is right. Now, you have no conception of how important this is until you have tried to referee an under nines football match. The innate sense of fairness and unfairness we have requires that justice is done. I ran a training session uh, for our boys and uh, other boys who are in the team where I, uh, which I was, uh, I'm coaching at the moment. And um, I, I nicked it from the guy, um, a friend of ours who coached the team last year that we were, we were part of. And uh, as part of this training session, I gave all the wrong decisions. 
So I was refereeing this football match. You might remember doing this in training. I was refereeing this football match um, uh, from when Darren did it. And, they, uh, uh, and uh, every time the ball went out, I gave it to the wrong team. Every time it was a goal kick, I gave a corner. If someone missed, I gave a goal. And it was dry. I mean, the reason you do this with, uh, with, with boys playing football is because you're teaching them that whatever happens in the game, you've got to play on, right? You can't spend your whole time throwing your hands in the air and saying it's not fair or the other team will score, right? You've got to learn how to play on. It was remarkable how hard it was for them to do this. I mean, remarkable. You see this with grown-ups as well. The sense of the desire that the person who's in charge will do what is right is so strong, And Isaiah says, when this king, the king who comes from the other kings and who also is before the other kings, they come from him and he comes from them, almost as if he's eternal. When he comes, he will do what is right. People who have nothing will not be oppressed, will not be put down by people who have everything. No longer will governments say that things that are harmful and wrong are good and right. And the second thing he's going to do, and you can see this in verse 6 to 9, is he's going to make it possible for there to be peace between natural enemies. You know, if Isaiah was writing this uh, today between, uh, uh, to a, a contemporary young audience, he would say, When this king comes, Arsenal fans will lie down with Spurs. And Man United and Man City will eat together. Liverpool and Everton will be at war no more. Neither will they quarrel on all my holy mountain. I mean, you guys are an eschatological picture of Jesus. Hallelujah. For those who don't get it, um, it's a divided household between Liverpool and Everton fans. possible for natural enemies to be at peace with one another. Actually, he says he's going to do something even more remarkable. He's going to make it possible for their natures to change. So they don't desire to hurt each other anymore. That's all this stuff is about the wolf lying, you know, the, the, the lion and the lamb lying down together. Cow and the bear lying down together. He's picking two sets of animals that are at war with one another and he's saying that actually... God will make it so possible for people who naturally are opposed, who hate each other, who are horrible to one another, to be friends, to be at peace. That it's, it's as if lions and calves were able to go out hunting together. Think about the school playground. The bully and the bullied will play in peace. Finally, Isaiah says, this, this king, the one who's before and after, the one who's God but also person, will draw everyone together, showing the way and uniting them in himself. What do we learn about Jesus? Well, Christians understand Isaiah to be predicting the coming of Jesus. We understand this for good reason, right? St. Paul understood it in that way. Jesus made references to this. It's, it's throughout the New Testament. We understand that Jesus is what Isaiah is talking about. I think it tells us three things that are important to remember about Jesus and that teach us how to hope. 
Now, I'm somebody who's, who's uh, very often of a sad disposition. I'm a bit of an Eeyore. Uh, I believe that I inherit this partly from my father, who is the quintessential Eeyore. You know, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, he's always by the thing, oh, oh, it might rain today. He says, it's a beautiful bright sky. He says, oh, it might rain later. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm a bit of an Eeyore, so I actually need someone to teach me how to hope because hope doesn't come naturally to me. There are people, I'm married to one, Plessa, for whom hope is like their natural disposition, right? It's raining outside and she thinks it and thinks, but it might be sunny this afternoon. Isn't this great? The grass is getting watered. We can build a puzzle. And uh, for that kind of person, they don't really need to be taught how to hope. But some of us do need to be taught how to hope. And uh, the first thing that Jesus teaches us about how to hope is that Jesus comes to those who are in pain. And with a sense of defeat. Those for whom the world hurts. Jesus comes to people for whom school is not a happy place. Jesus' love is for those who find they have no friends in the classroom. Or those for whom work is frustrating and sad. For those for whom parenting promised so much and seems to be delivering nothing but sleeplessness and, and pain. For those whose parents are sick. For those who are struggling with their own health. Jesus comes to those people. As I says, from the stump of Jesse comes the root and the shoot. See, Christmas is not about the plastic happiness of a thousand pretty lights bought at little cost and more food than we could ever need or want. Christmas is about God saying to people who are lonely, people who are sad, People for whom the world seems to have no answer. People for whom school every day is a cross that they have to pick up and bear. People for whom the week holds nothing but trips to hospital. Christmas is about God saying to those people and to those who carry guilt and shame, those who know that they have failed in their lives, it's not over. The world may not hold any hope for you at all, but I have hope for you. I am hope for you. Christmas isn't a sparkly ornament on an already flourishing and happy tree. Jesus comes in response to the pain of a world marked and marred by frustration and failure. What is it that makes Christmas necessary is that the world can be rubbish. And we can feel rubbish in it. From the stump. The, the tree that everyone has forgotten. Secondly, we, we, we see that Jesus comes in power. He doesn't only just come to those in pain. He comes in power. We can mistake the scene of a baby in a manger, helpless, save for his mother's care and protection, for powerlessness. 
Christmas is not about powerlessness. That child in his still undeveloped little finger holds more power than all of the kings who come to worship him. Their kingdoms have fallen. His is at present the greatest the world has ever known and projected to increase year on year for the next 50 years. Jesus is many things, but powerless is not one of them. Christmas is a mark of the humility of Christ, of God's humility, his willingness to become nothing for us. But it's not a narrative of his powerlessness to help us. Rather, Isaiah encourages us to hope in this child precisely because he's powerful. Now, this doesn't mean that everything gets better now. I want to I say that because our wing of the church is great on faith and on prayer and on hope and on encouragement. We sing songs that are uplifting. You know, give thanks to the Lord, our God and, God and King, his love and just forever. And I believe that and I want to say amen to it. But I do want to say a word to those who are suffering. Jesus is not here to say your suffering will end as soon as you say, I want to follow you. His suffering didn't end as soon as he came. He was, as Charles Spurgeon said, a man of sorrows. The hope of Christmas is not that our problems go away like that, but rather that Christ is working in us and through us and in the world so that it can be healed. And it will be healed one day. Now we experience some of that healing now. It is because Jesus comes filled with the and power of God that he is able to heal our hearts. He might not stop the bully, but he might make you able to live in peace and joy, even while in the midst of the bullying. He might not make the child sleep, but he might give you strength to walk through it. And he promises it to us that one day, there will be a day when this is fulfilled. And we taste that now. We taste it now. We taste a moment of it because of Christmas and we look forward to the fullness of it in future. We tell stories, uh, uh, true stories, of people, our friends, who've gone to hospital and been scanned, and the doctors have found a tumour in their brains and all of the associated bleeding, and are scanning just to find how many others there are, and we pray for that person, and then they come back and say, well, the first one's gone. Not only is there no more, but the first one we found is gone. We don't know what's going on now. Go home and rest. We tell stories of that and we taste a moment of it, but then a week ago we were taking a funeral for a friend's father who died from cancer. We taste what Christ has won for us and we look forward to it being fulfilled in hope. We find hope because Jesus is powerful and his power is given to us. And to other people. Now, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God to bring that hope to other people, then we're going to pray for that in a minute. Finally, Christ comes to bring peace. Peace between God and people and among people themselves. Not some insipid, uninspiring peace that denies that there's any right or wrong. But the peace that comes from justice being done and what is wrong being put right. This, of course, leads to the cross. 
Everything Isaiah talks about is, is built on the cross. Where God's love for humanity, his truth and his justice are united. And Jesus makes possible a true peace. For those who will accept his teaching, who will come to God through him, there is the hope of peace with themselves, with God and with others. Now this requires repentance. We talk about Christmas and we talk about the coming of the Prince of Peace as if, as if God should do something and we should not have to do anything in response and it would just infect us. Christmas came and therefore there's peace with the world. It's not like that. It's the possibility of peace. Isaiah says that as well. He delights in the fear of the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying we have to respond. Now, very often when preachers say that, what they mean is you have to respond, but I'm okay. Right? So I will give you an example from my own heart. Uh, I am... Uh, particularly tired at the moment. I've been going for seven years or so without real break and I'm coming up to sabbatical and one of the things that I've started to read in preparation for that and I'm reading C.S. Lewis, you know the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia? Wrote loads of other books about Christianity and I find him the most helpful writer I've ever read. And Lewis talks in places about um, the lives of different people he's met. And one of these people, I read his description of this person's life and how God needed to deal with this person. And actually, I was, I was convicted to my core. Now, I'm not about to confess inappropriate stuff. But Lewis talks about somebody who gives themselves up for other people all the time. They're very uh, unselfish, but they're very, very self-centered. So they're very unselfish, but they are cross when people don't notice. Right? So they will constantly be putting themselves out for other people. But inside, if some people don't notice that they are putting themselves out for other people, then they get really cross and bitter and angry about it. Because you know, it's really all about them. That's who they want to talk about. But they will give themselves for other people. Kind of martyr syndrome. And I was reading this. I thought, wow, it's like he summed up my heart. That is what I am like. And it hit me. I mean, I honestly believe the Spirit of God was in those words. And as, they, as I read them on the page, there was one moment, I don't do this very often, where I was in the middle of doing something else and I thought, I've got to stop. And I actually went down on my knees. I'm not even that, that sort of person. I went down on my knees and I said, I am so sorry. This is what I am like. This is what I'm like at times. This is part of the reason why I struggle with depression, I think. Partly because I've been so self-centered that anger and bitterness then starts to consume you. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm the devil of hell. Please don't. I'm giving this illustration. I'm, I'm, I'm illustrating it so you don't think that this is a preacher standing at the front beating his Bible and saying, you need to do better. What I'm saying is there is hope of peace. You see, the sequel to this story is from the moment that I started to do that two days ago, I have felt gradually happier and happier and more and more peaceful. I wonder for how many years I've been carrying the burden of not being willing to actually acknowledge who I am before God and say, oh, I want to be different. Now, I'm a, I've been a Christian for years. You'd be relieved to know. But it is that process of bringing our hearts to Jesus and saying, look, you've made it possible for me to be at peace. Now I want to say yes. 
And actually, I know that means dealing with something inside me. In Lewis's story, The Abolition of Man, which I thoroughly recommend, one of the three best books I've ever read, he describes going, he has a kind of imagined journey into heaven. And he describes someone who arrives there on the bus from uh, hell and death. And uh, just roll with me, it makes sense in the story. And this person has got this animal on his shoulder and it's kind of like a creature that's uh, twisted and angry and that every time one of the uh, spirits who's in heaven wants to deal with him, this man has come to the point of heaven and the angel says, look, I need to kill this thing. And the man protects it with all his worth and he knows that it has to die in order for him to become full of love and grace and peace. And this thing is just whispering words of bitterness and anger and into his, into his ear and it's self-defensive so the man always says no I don't want you to do that I, want, I just want you to I just want you to can you not just tame it and the, and the angel speaking to him says no I can't just tame it it's got to die and the man says well, can we not take our time over it can we not die gradually he says no he needs to die now and the man says well I, I, I don't know how I'll live without it he says you won't, I don't know how you'll live with it and eventually the angel seizes this creature on his shoulder and he breaks its neck And the thing falls to the ground and the man becomes a being of light, full of joy and peace. And the thing itself is then redeemed, right? It becomes this horse and he rides it. It's an amazing story. You should definitely read it. It's about 150 pages long. It's a picture of all those things we hold on to that we make so precious to us, but which are stopping us from receiving what Isaiah speaks about here. I want to say right now, this morning, there are some of us, and I honestly don't have anyone in mind, who are holding on to things that we know God needs to deal with and we want to be at peace and we want to be full of joy and we want to have everything he said about it and there's this thing that needs to die before we can receive it. And all that's necessary is for us to come and say, God, to use my own example, Father, I want to say I have been a man who is self-centered and full of anger and bitterness And I don't want to be any more. I am sorry. I want to be different. And my my testimony is that in that moment, God takes the thing and breaks its neck. And you start to become the being of light that you were created to be. See, if you want to be full of the Holy Spirit, that's where you need to start. I'm just going to take a moment now to be quiet.